This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Ian Walsh. Ian is a full-time lender in the real estate space. He lends private money to other investors so that they can go fix up properties. He has an extensive amount of experience in real estate, having been in real estate for over a decade. He built the largest wholesaling company in Philadelphia. He also built and sold a property management company. He's been very successful in real estate. And today he's going to teach you how to build passive income through private lending in real estate. We talk about the differences between hard money and private money. We talk about the state of the lending market today and how it has been impacted by increasing interest rates and so much more. There's a ton of knowledge in this conversation, and I know there are plenty of you out there who have capital and are thinking about becoming private lenders, but you're not sure what route to take, and maybe you're not sure what the veterans from the industry have to say about private lending today, and that is the window that we're giving you. We also discuss what Ian thinks new potential private lenders should be thinking about today and whether it's a good time to become a private lender today. So great conversation. You're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotz. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now let's get with Ian. Let's talk hard money. Ian, thank you for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about what you do in the hard money space? Sure. Uh, I am considered a private lender, so I'm a direct private lender. Um, my very simple explanation of it is typically an investor will call me for funds to close on a transaction, whether it's like a bridge loan or a flip or a construction loan. Usually they use me for speed um, and ease to close on a deal quite quickly. They'll call me up as a private lender, uh, looking for a private lender instead of going to like a bank or a traditional route that usually requires a lot more paperwork and time. Um, I'm asset driven. So I'll look at the asset as my focus. And if it looks good, usually, you know, we'll tell you the same day if we're ready to close. Um, and then people usually stay within my money for about a year. Great. Okay. So let's talk about the differences between like a hard money loan and a basic just private money arrangement. I think a lot of folks get kind of twisted up and get those things mixed. So let's define hard money. So the private money slash hard, private money, I think in 10 years and hard money are going to be called, it's all going to be called private money within 10 years. The industry is transitioning to that term. Um, so we actually secure the domain private money bankers as well because we we see it transitioning that way. So anyways, um, it's really not that much different. Honestly, it's, it's not a very different, people think it's very different, but the traditional way to look at that would have been a private money scenario would have been a, people think they're calling like a mom or pop of, you know, hey, I've got a couple million bucks. I just retired and I want to lend out to an individual versus a hard money uh, scenario would have been more, industrial or into, I'm sorry, institutionalized feeling to it where you're calling up and there's a bank uh, involved and so forth. So, but the industry is really based around the private individuals uh, in the way our company would be structured. Like that's the heart of the industry, um, which isn't really, 
it, it is a private money feel. Like you're looking for the family office feel uh, when you're calling for a good private money lender. You're not looking any, especially anymore, because they're out of business for the most part since interest rates have gone up. Um, for that hard money institutional feeling. Um, so it's more of just like the interaction basis and really it comes down to where typically, typically where the person is sourcing their funds from. So private money is private individuals that are not bank funded, um, whereas hard money traditionally is going to be bank funded, but there could be any mix in there. It's, it's not a hard, hard rule. Okay. So let's talk terms a bit because interest rates, as everybody knows, are up significantly. In my mind, that would have to impact the private lending space. So what have you seen? Are rates up? Have lenders generally pulled back in the private money space? What's been the impact? Yeah. So the um, so this past like 10 years in the hard money industry has been a little bit of an anomaly because of the, uh, the money printing and the low interest rates. So Wall Street money wanted to get involved with it. Uh, because they were, you know, they were, they had money at one percent, and they realized they could lend out at ten percent, and that spread is tremendously attractive to them at that time. Um, it's but interest rates are also his, were at a historical low. It didn't make sense. It, it was it was an anomaly. So what had happened was um, there was a lot of cost cutter lenders in there. So maybe like four or five years ago, you know, um, I, I could tell like you know who was going to be the 9% or 8% hard money, which made no sense to me because hard money is traditionally 13, 14, 15, 16%. And we, because we're not bank back, we don't use bank money. We just, we just left our rates at 13%, 14%. And um, what had happened as soon as the interest rates started to creep up just a couple of years ago or whatever. Now the, um, the bank's, Either one of two things happened. They got spooked because they don't want to, they know what's coming. They know that that, that will crunch the market. And also it becomes less attractive. So their 9% spread is now 8% spread, 7% spread. Well, and then the front end guys that are running the business are looking at this going, man, I have to do, you know, the banks are closing my spread from this end and I have to do this much more volume, but there's not as much volume being done because there's not enough buyers out there. There's not enough housing or inventory that, that's being sold. So the people that relied on volume due to their lower pricing margins got, they got crunched because they had high overhead, um, and they were they relied on volume and the volume dried up and there was no longer banks that wanted to fund them um so that's what happened in the space so what's what you have left now um are guys like the, the, the family offices like ours uh which are it didn't really do anything to our interest rates our interest rates just kind of stayed uh perhaps in the near future yeah if interest rates go up again we'll probably raise our rates just because we can um not really because we have to but at the same time you know, we didn't make uh, those crazy spreads that people were making on the way up because we knew this was we knew this was going to happen. We knew as soon as the market hiccuped, everything was going to settle out. But you know, we we didn't make those those the short term cash grab bank rates that people were making. So it's hard to say. I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, we're so we just we just followed the track and trajectory of old school private money lenders, and we just the guys that have been through three, four, five cycles um doing this we followed their business model and we didn't take the bank money when it was, was in front of us i'm definitely not saying that i'm you know there were some very intelligent people that played that model um we just happened to be model ours differently and we just chose a different path and you know we're fortunate with that so what have you seen on the acquisitions and dispositions side of things when you're working with borrowers and 
doing deals, transaction volume, as you mentioned, is at basically historical lows now, and it seems to be remaining low and uh, inventories are low in all markets, right? The real estate market is slow generally. How are you staying active? How are you seeking to lend to the best people that you can in this difficult market? Fortunately, what happened was when the, um, and we were hoping this was going to happen in the event that things were going to change when the market shifted. So when the other guys went out of business, the other like low cutting rate guys went out of business, they had, that's where all your high end, um, high profile professional investors were investing, right? Like why, I get it. Why would, why, why would a guy flipping 50 houses a year want to pay 13% with my money when he can go get it for 9%? somewhere else. So all those guys that running high-end operations and so forth that were doing that um, were over there. Well, those guys, when they, when they closed their doors, they had to go find money, right? So they, they came to us. So uh, all of a sudden our borrower uh, quality, and I say borrower quality, I mean ability to execute, knowing the market, professionals and so forth, that really drifted upwards. So they're still, those guys are still doing deals. Um, so those guys came over to our space. So the, our quality borrower went up, um, which was great. Uh, but right now we're also seeing less flips in general. It's just, there just are less flips going on. So we're seeing a lot more though, like bridge loans, commercial loans, you know, three to $5 million uh, requests for um, maybe, you know, guys that are cash heavy are coming out too. Cause like, it might be, Hey, I need 5 million. I can put up 50%. I'll bring 2.5 million. You put up 2.5 million. Those are the kind of requests we're getting right now. Uh, more so than, Hey, I'm buying this house for a hundred. I'm putting a hundred in, you know, this is a flip. This is my first time, that kind of thing. So, but we still see that we, I still see it. We just, it's just shifting. The demand of the borrower has shifted in terms of what we're dealing with. There's not a lot of capital out there. So. So that's one of the big things over the last few years is there's been so much money sloshing around right before rates started to go up and now liquidity has started to dry up and that's impacted the investment market. But for someone, I know a lot of our listeners out there have capital that they want to deploy. They might be considering getting into the lending side of the business. What uh, you know, wisdom or knowledge would you offer them if they're thinking about becoming lenders at this time in this market? Ooh, yeah, that's a... Uh... Maybe wait on that. Wait till the market. So one thing, one one thing that you um, you know, a rising market, a market that's heading upwards in a cycle, will make everyone look smart and make a lot of people think they're smarter than they are. Um, it's it's best to remain humble and always thinking that the next six months the market's going to crash when you're a lender. It just is. So I would say wait to the market because we're we're on a teetering point right now. Like we're on the tipping point of either we're, I don't know how far it's going to fall or whatever, but it's right there. So jumping in now, if you underwrite a deal now, thinking you're going to get the ARV or you're going to get a number now, um, and you go, oh, I'm going to lend seventy percent of this number, and I just want to jump in the game, and Zillow gave me this, you know, this value. Um, check back in a year from now when the market had pull, pulls in 10 or 15% or 20% or whatever that number may be. And let me know how that Zillow value is you know, doing. Um, so my suggestion would be at the moment, I would hang tight. I would hang tight. But when the market does start to bottom out and it starts to rise again, you know, like the 2008, 2007, um, that didn't really bottom out till like 2009 or 2010 or whatever. So you got to let that settle. And then... Because what it's going to do is there's no, there's no, 
if you're in this for ego, you're the money will correct you. So like, there's no shame in being patient and saying, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. So when you don't know a rising market will cover up a mistake. So meaning that, you know, you might've made a mistake, didn't even know it. And because the market's going up that 10 or 15 percent appreciation, which is a ton, but that did, that did just happen in, in 2021 and 2022 will all of a sudden cover up maybe a mistake you made in your analysis and still get you out break even or with a little bit of money. Whereas like if your analysis was where it, where it needed to be at the bottom of a market or in a transitioning market, you would have gotten crunched. So my answer would be be a little bit patient right now. Now is not the time to be right now. Right now is professionals in the market. And I don't mean to say that like in a boastful manner. I mean to say it like just save your money. They're the only professionals that are professionals are the ones that have bigger bank accounts. Like there is no um, there's no badge of honor in doing deals in a tough market. Like why make it harder on yourself if you're brand new getting into this? Don't uh, be my suggestion. Time to learn by watching and, and learning rather than. Yeah. Don't take risks. Don't take risks in the top of a market. Like don't, don't, um, people like to, you know, everybody, you know, that got rich and you, everybody, you know, that's going to be rich in the next 10 years. You're not going to know their name, but you will know it in 10 years. And their story is going to be that they caught the bottom of the market and they got rich. What you don't hear are everybody else that got crushed trying to buy the top. First of all, got caught holding at the top of the market and then they got crushed on the way through. You don't hear those stories. You know, the, the, the history's rule books are written by the winners, right? So, but you'll hear those names and everybody will be attracted to it. And everybody will jump back in the market on the rise in the next 10 years. So um, I just, I'm always risk adverse personally. So patience right now is, is the name of the game. And, you know, that, that's, that's my advice. Be patient right now. Gotcha. Okay. Let's talk due diligence a little bit because you guys do deals in several different markets. I and mean, a lot of the lenders that I know personally do deals in one city, if not one portion of one city, but you're a bit more spread out than that. You mentioned Zillow and the notorious Zestimate, which does not right. have a, a great track record in many markets, but how do you approach analyzing a deal from a professional angle in an uncertain market? Uh, for, we don't enter on certain markets. So we know our areas. So I have partners and each one of us are experts in the markets that we're in. Um, and, you know, we all use MLS. We're, we're all, you know, either realtors or use MLS access. We don't use, we use, sometimes Zillow actually gives it like a good idea, can give us a feel, but it's really just a game of uh, repetition. Like the way we underwrite deals is just so much feel like we've done this thousands of times uh, the other day i was just thinking i was like i think i, I think i've done maybe like 50, somewhere between 50 and 100,000 comps i don't really know exactly over this is the course of my career but i was like thinking i was like man i probably you know when it was said and done somewhere maybe around 50,000 comps or so you know um because i used to do i used to wholesale i used to do other stuff too uh, so about 15 years of of comps and doing quite a few deals um it's just experience so so and my, my other partners are give or take, you know, the same type of numbers. Um, and then he comes down to, okay, like that's feeling out the market, knowing the market, what you see there, you know, seeing it every day. And then, then it's also, then you get very good at reading people very quickly and knowing the mistakes they're going to make. Like I, if I, I should write a book about like, there's, oh, there's only so many types of people that call that for money. They're all the same. You know, you, you could just, you could just don't even tell me your name. Don't tell me much. Give, give me a 30 second conversation and you fit this box. Meaning you're, you know, let's, you're, you could either be, call me up and have a great deal and you're going to screw it completely up 
based on your personality, a couple questions I might ask you or just kind of feeling you out. You might have a not great deal, but you might be a professional that I'm like, this guy's buttoned up and he's going to get it done. So there's a feel that you get that everybody kind of fits in a box. Nobody's like unique uh, as like we all like to think we are. We're just, we're not. Um, so once you kind of get a feel for those people and you kind of can see a project in your head with that person and the building very quickly, it just like materializes in your head, I guess, after a lot of experience. And then at that point, that's, you know, I know when there's a connection or I know when there's, hey, this is where this is going to go south. If it goes south, it's going to go here. It's going to happen here. 50,000 comps and we do maybe, I know, we take about 15, 20,000 calls a year. Um, so between those two things, you kind of get a feel for what's going on. Okay. So speaking with people and trying to understand basically what box they fit in and categorize it that way, as far as the numbers side of things, you mentioned the uh, looking at the MLS to run comps that you know the markets where you invest. But as far as the like numbers for a repair, the condition of the property, things along those lines, what do you look for there? I assume you do that after you figure out which box the person fits in, but still checking their work before you lend money on it. What's your process? Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of part of the um, that box that we call it, you, you know, people fit in. So a lot of times I can tell by their numbers what they're trying to do. Are they somebody who's honest with themselves? Are they tricking themselves just based on the numbers they give me? So, you know, somebody who's telling me, trying to sell me on, or the way they maybe try to sell me on a deal, just try to tell me what the value is. I'm like, look, I, I, like you've done three comps. I've done 50,000. Like, just trust, like, I'm not trying to, you're trying to sell yourself, not me. You know, you can feel all that in a conversation. So um, I see that. Right. And then all of a sudden I'll see something like, man, I'm, I'm sensing this person is not really sure what they're doing. Bang. They send me over numbers like, Hey, this house needs 30,000 in repairs to make it worth $350,000 or $400,000. And I'm going, no, like without even batting an eye, it's a hundred thousand dollar repair budget. And I just know that. So I know that. So then that automatically triggers a whole bunch of other things going on in my head. So, you know, I, I know within reason on most, you know, houses where, where the repair budget should be to properly do it. Um, and sometimes people come in lower, mostly lower, sometimes higher, um, which is always a better sign. And then when you get into like the bridge, bridge loans and stuff like that, or bigger construction, like million dollar construction projects and stuff. A lot of times I just veer away from them. Cause if I don't know, I don't know an answer. I'm not ashamed to be like, I don't know. Like I'll, I'll do the, I'll do the acquisition portion. Like I don't know how to manage a million dollar project. I don't. So, um, or ever like manage the disbursements on it. Cause that's all we do. They, we give out, like they'll go out and the, the borrower will go do work. Our inspector will go out and look at it and say, Hey, work looks good. We'll see the pictures and I'll look at it and go, yeah, it looks good. Here's your, you know, 20 grand, whatever it is. Well, if you're doing a million dollar project and they, they have it up to like beams and I don't know that they didn't put the hundred thousand dollar HVAC system in correctly. And it wasn't up to code. All of a sudden I've dispersed a quarter million dollars and it's all wrong. That's a huge, I don't know. I'm in trouble. So, um, we just, you know, we stick to like, construction stuff you know i like to say under a quarter million I, I can handle that um when you get above that though it starts to get out of my wheelhouse so anyways back to your question the numbers i can tell a lot by somebody sending numbers if they're overpaying if the construction's on point uh you can tell pretty much right away and then when we go to close the loan you know maybe the ninety thousand dollar repair budget ends up being eighty five thousand six hundred or something it doesn't really matter yeah it makes sense thirty thousand dollars will go very quickly fixing right. up a house and and i see people making that mistake all the time so I also like to dig into taxes as a, a private lender, as somebody who's making your money on debt. That to me seems to be one of the more 
difficult aspects of being a private lender in that you don't have access to the same real estate tax advantages that the you know owners of real estate do from depreciation, 1031, all the, all the advantages that we have. But how do you handle that in particular using IRAs or you know, potentially entities to defer taxes? What do you do? Yeah, we decided to keep it super simple um, with a lot of it. Now, we, do we use some stuff like that? Yeah, but then definitely not the majority of our funds uh, are not using that capacity. Um, but there's definitely, you know, we'll have people that will contribute from their IRAs, actually borrowers that will come out from their IRAs. Um, I get people that request, you know, our funds for 1031 tax exchanges. Um, as a lender, you can do that. You can, you know, however you want to, you know, usually the custodian will be the one that will let you know that you're in the guidelines or outside the guidelines. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty common to see IRAs involved somewhere in a transaction, buying it or, but we on our end, from our funding perspective, there's some stuff we do, but we actually, we just, we, we spent a while. We said, like, maybe like, I don't remember, like four or five years ago, we did a pretty hard look. We, you know, we got like a black belt accountant, you know, like a big boy accountant and, um, you know, a firm that's like, real legit and they know they know everything just everything you have to know at that level and in the end it wasn't really um we use them for like complicated stuff i guess or tougher stuff but when there's like a question like that we we say hey is there something we can do here because we don't really we don't like to like we don't like to make anything messy we like to keep things very straightforward so uh they'll tell us if there's something and there's not really as much creativity in that space at least in bulk like when you're doing like larger amounts of loans like us Maybe in like the smaller, like sub $500,000 account, there might be stuff you could do because it's a little bit easier to maneuver and stuff, but the amount of paperwork wasn't worth it for what we do, honestly. So there's not, not a lot in the tax side that I think we get too involved with, but I see it, you know, IRAs and 1031s frequently. Hmm. Okay. So I'd like to talk about what happens when a deal goes wrong. You do a lot of deals and we all have deals go wrong from time to time. So what steps do you take when it looks like a, a loan that you've made, a deal that you've lent on isn't going well, you know, before you get to foreclosure, what options might you have to, to work it out and get yourself, like get the deal back on track, recoup your money? Every deal is different. That's why like having like, when you're like a big churn and burn operation that you, you have no idea when you get into those, you know, we know our files. Like I know each file that we have, um, you know, I know which files are in default, which files aren't like we, we, each of the partners knows which, what their files look like intimately. And when you're like that big institutionalized version, you have no idea. So you don't really, your workout ability as an institutional, I'm sure those guys right now are going through a lot of pain. Um, they're not lending out. So they're on defense, playing defense right now. And because they're dealing with the, you know, I had a guy, one guy from, I'm not going to mention the name, but you know, he called me and said, I, he said, Hey, can you look to buy our book? And I looked at it and I said, I like, you know, not all of these, but I like this house, this number, this house, and this number. He was like, Yeah. That one, we thought there was a house there, but there's not. And I'm like, Oh, man. So I'm going, Man, I'm like, what other skeletons are in this closet, right? Like, what else could be potentially be out there? Whereas, like, you know, our stuff is very intimate in terms of what we know. So when something does come up, it's going to be deal by deal. And um, uh, most of the time, there's going to be, it depends on the bar has a lot to do with the borrower, right? Are they going to go MIA and try to hide under a carpet or are they going to keep lines of communication open, come up with a plan either, or just list it and sell it. Hey, I, you know, um, my contractor took me, I don't have the money. 
you know, what should I do? Sell it. Like, like don't hold on to something because like the docs that you're signing have a PG on it. And the attorneys that have written those docs are very legit. So if you drag this out, all it's going to do is stack fees, stack fees, stack costs on top. Just sell it, cut the bandaid, take the loss and move on. Um, that's usually the best route, but there's other times too, when somebody's like close, you know, maybe they're like halfway through a project, they're a few thousand short, we maneuver the, um, some of the draw schedule around and make it work for them. Um, sometimes when you get to the end of like a term or maybe the project took longer, but it's ready to go on the market. Hey, I need an extra three months to put this on the market and sell it. Yeah. We can, we'll figure out an extension or something like that. We don't like to go to foreclosure contrary to popular belief. It, like it's a pain in the butt. Like it's not a loan to own scenario. I don't, I don't want your house. I want my money back. That's it. So um, even if there was a more potential money on the back end, people like, I don't care about 5,000 extra dollars. Like I don't, I don't care. Like it's not worth the headache of the legal fees to go and, and do this. We'd rather just keep a very clean relationship. Um, but in the event that you go to foreclosure, you just, you know, somebody stops paying, you know, 90 days late, 30, 60 days late, whatever it is, you're going to get a foreclosure letter. And, um, but the best thing somebody can do honestly is keep an open line of communication with their lender. Cause as soon as the lender goes, I don't really know what their intentions are. You haven't heard from them for 15, 20 days since like their letter, I don't know, but just go to the next step of foreclosure. Like you don't even give yourself an option if you, if you close off communication. So a lot of it has to do with the borrower, quite frankly. And um, most of our stuff are workouts. We've certainly taken them back at the, at the sheriff's sale, but it's not, it's not like usually through a very active, you know, working, trying to borrow, trying to work with it. It's not, that's not usually the scenario. And when you go to sheriff's sale, that's when things have really gone wrong. It just disappear. People just disappear, right? They just, and I get it. They probably get overwhelmed. They've got tough attorneys after them. We're not the only bill chasing them, right? I'm sure they have other bills. I'm sure it's a tough spot in their life. I don't, I don't mean to be, you know, insensitive to the scenario at hand. Um, so I feel for those people, but it's just, it's just the nature of the beast. They, they did a business deal, didn't work out. And, um, you know, that's where our underwriting upfront has to be done right. Absolutely. Wow. Great lessons today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Ian, I've got three questions I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Uh, in regarding uh, business, I'll, I'll stick to business for that because I my my, uh, my number one book recommendation wouldn't even fit anywhere near this show in terms of like the other stuff I get into. But uh, as far as business, I would say my origins into, in, into the industry came from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. That was what like I read an excerpt in that and it put me into real estate when I was like 21 or whatever. So I'd say just like for the nostalgia purposes, and there's a lot of good 
lessons in there. There's some things that just kind of like change my change my brain just enough to like go, hey, like you know, maybe I should take a look at this. And next thing you know, here we are. So that would be the business book that I would say was it was worth a read. Love that. Love Rich Dad Poor Dad. Question number two: Who or what inspires you? But inspiration in terms of life, I guess at this point versus. Uh, you know, my family, my kids, like I do, you know, that's, that's really my, my biggest focus for so many reasons. So, um, I don't know, inspiration. I was never really like a inspiration type person growing up, like never had like heroes or anything like that. Or never, I always, I always, I always felt no matter who it was, I always felt that if one other person did it, I can do it. I just always felt that way. Not, and I never thought that I was special. I just was like, if I can do it and I look at, you know, I look at anybody and say the same thing, if I can do it, you can do it. So, I never really looked at anybody in terms of uh, a person as inspiration so much. I found some people that were pretty impressive individuals, but inspiration not so much. I say just the day-to-day inspiration right now comes from my my family. I love that. It's a great, great way to be inspired. Question number three, think about Ian at 80 years old. What advice does Ian at 80 give to Ian of today? You know, it's, I would answer that question very different maybe three years ago, but um, I would say just really live in the now, like really appreciate the now, the moment. Um, and you don't, you know, I, I learned, I've learned through some, through some stuff in life that I really don't need much. You don't need much. And you know, the happiness that you're looking for, that everybody's searching for the gap that you're trying to fill is found truly from within. So like whatever your scenario is, you can find your happiness in that, but it comes from within. So, um, I spent a lot of my life, a lot of my early career focused on bringing money in to fill that gap. And I still really like money. I mean, I really enjoy what it does and provides. Don't get me wrong, but I don't need it to fill the, um, the happiness factor the way I, maybe I thought it would. It's, it's a facilitator, it's a multiplier, it's a volume mechanism, but, um, you know, you gotta be able to be happy dirt poor or filthy rich because there's a lot of unhappy rich people and there's a lot of unhappy poor people and vice versa there's a lot of happy rich people and a lot of happy um people that don't have a lot of money so it comes from within so my 80 year old self will be happy from within love it ian thank you for joining us today and sharing these lessons on being a private money lender if folks want to learn more or get in touch where can they find you um, they can always email me, uh, I a N just my first name at hardmoneybankers.com Um, or, uh, our website's hardmoneybankers.com. So either one works. Great. Thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday right now. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.